This episode of Case Acquaint contains material and language which may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello there. Welcome back to Case Acquaint. You have found episode 37. We have some updates for you today. We've done four minisodes, which, if y'all remember, are short episodes of an urgent nature. Those are being posted on our YouTube channel. Two of those cases have had major developments. We may do some full-length episodes on these in the future once more information comes available. We do have news alerts set up, but I want to thank the listeners who posted some links to updated news articles on our Facebook page for others who are following. I just can't express enough how nice it is to see someone helping to spread the word about these cases, especially when there's new information. So thank you to those listeners, you know who you are, for getting in there before we did to let other people know. And thanks to everyone who shares any of these cases on their social media or even talks about them with friends or family. Sharing information, asking questions, tagging local agencies, politicians, and media outlets is one of the only ways the community, which is also a victim when a violent crime happens, it's one of the only ways we can encourage action on a case, hold them accountable to us, and also one of the best ways we can thank the local agencies for their hard work, which is what I'm about to do right now. So, Minnesota number one, that was Kiara Bergman. She went missing from the Phoenix, Arizona area. The police wasted no time investigating this as a crime. They've been extremely proactive. Now, there is not an arrest yet, but Kiara's body was found on Monday in Buckeye, which is west of Phoenix, kind of a suburb. It's one of those areas that has nice developments, and it also has tons of places that were supposed to be developed back about 10 years ago during the big real estate bubble, and for years had lots of brand new empty houses, unfinished houses, and incomplete neighborhoods with streets that led to nothing. Kiara's body was found dumped in one of these types of areas. So our thoughts are with Kiara's family. This isn't a happy outcome. We'll be watching this case as it develops since now we're looking at a homicide investigation. And again, thank you to the Phoenix Police Department for working hard on this case, but it's only just begun. Let's get someone arrested and brought to justice. Next, we had Minisode number two. It's posted exclusively on our YouTube channel, and it was a quick review and call to action for a young woman named Kristen Ashley Bennett, who went missing from Newport, North Carolina. That's in Carteret County. From the start, it was suspicious. And I can't remember, but I think I mentioned that in these missing person cases, you have to be careful about the circumstances of when they were last seen. Because much of the time, the last person who reportedly saw that person could be lying. It could be the person who did something to him. But unfortunately, that's the information which seems to always wind up on the NamUs pages without a caveat. Anyway, the last person to see Kristen, her live-in boyfriend, has just been arrested for murder. They haven't announced that they've found her body yet, but they're confident that they have enough evidence of her death. That usually means something like they found enough blood evidence that tells them a victim lost so much blood that they couldn't have survived, 
or they found parts or remnants of a body that has yet to be identified, but they're pretty sure it's their victim. And in this case, they did note that they have lots of evidence, but of course, we don't know what all they have. Anyway, so now this boyfriend's been charged. He isn't cooperating. We'll just have to see how this turns out. Again, thank you to the Carteret County Sheriff's Office for not wasting a whole lot of time in getting a search warrant. They probably could have done that sooner based on the sketchy initial details of Kristen's disappearance. But hey, I still got to hand it to them. They knew they needed more resources to conduct a professional investigation, so they called other agencies in for that help. And for our Pender County and Robeson County listeners, isn't that interesting? Carteret is not far from Pender. And look at the difference in taking action on a missing person and a possible murder. It's like night and day, isn't it? So good job to them. Hopefully we'll have more answers soon. And our thoughts are also with Kristen Ashley Bennett's family at this difficult time. One more quick update. The autopsies for the three victims from East Lumberton in Robeson County, North Carolina, from clear back a year and a half ago, finally came back. We're going to do a full-length episode on this update, but we wanted to make sure you all know that they finally released those autopsies. What this means to us as a community is that now we can say for sure that we should have been able to expect a full-on homicide investigation from the beginning. But due to the lack of information released, the authorities have been able to avoid having to answer questions about it. Now, it's time to conduct a proper homicide investigation for each one of these victims, Kristen Bennett, Rhonda Jones, and Megan Oxendine. Like I said, we're doing a full-length episode coming up, and we hope that they start making some progress finding out who killed these three ladies, all of whom have families who are hurting and deserve answers and justice. And that's enough for the updates. I know that was quite long, but you never can tell when information will come in. Thanks again to the listeners who posted those links on the Facebook page. It's much appreciated. Now on with today's story. Today's story is in a way related to the disappearance of Kristen Ashley Bennett from Newport. I don't want to confuse anyone, so I just want to note, I probably should have done this sooner, that Kristen Ashley Bennett and Kristen Bennett are two totally different victims from different counties of North Carolina. They're not even related that we know of. Anyway, so we were messaged by a listener who had noticed the quick update in the notes of Kristen Ashley Bennett's video. And we got into a conversation about not having a body, but still being able to charge and possibly convict. The listener was wondering, how can they arrest without a body? I think maybe there might be a lot of misconception out there about the importance of a body. Obviously, in a homicide case, that is ideal. But, well, it's not always necessary contrary to what some people like to tell families of victims. You know, you always hear, we can't prosecute without a body. That's what they say. You know, it, that can be a rubbish excuse. Sometimes they say, we have lots of circumstantial evidence, but that's not enough. That's more rubbish. Guess what circumstantial evidence is? That's what they call evidence. I'm not trying to be funny, but the term is not an oxymoron. Circumstance is evidence. When people say, but that's circumstantial, 
Okay, there's no need to put a but there, it's evidence. So we decided it might be a good exercise to explore this concept of prosecuting without a body, building a case and using what evidence is there, and also trusting in the common sense of jurors. I think there's a fear of bringing cases before juries without a CSI storyline. But the truth is, that is what a jury is for, to convict or acquit based on the evidence gathered. And if a small town agency doesn't have the resources to gather evidence up to modern standards, they should be calling in a larger agency for help, like what Carteret County did. They make a great example in the Kristen Ashley Bennett case that we're seeing right now. That's what they've done. And that's probably why they were able to make an arrest. Now, on the flip side, we have sloppy investigations done by inexperienced and or disengaged investigators. So we have lots of examples of those types of investigations. Just from this podcast, we have too many to list. But Rachel Galbraith is one. She was profiled back in episode 14, I think. Our recent episode about Angela Whalen Hudson and Michelle Hundley-Smith, that's another example. The list goes on and on. Anyway, this important case that we're going to talk about today helped set precedent in the United States allowing once and for all circumstantial evidence to be used in deciding guilt or innocence. It happened in the 1950s. This is the story of the murder of Evelyn Scott. Evelyn Scott is a victim of murder. Her life was meaningful to her, and she tried to enjoy it as much as possible until someone took it away. In most of the stories you'll read about Evelyn, she seems to be reduced to a brief stereotype, that of a rich elderly woman with lots of money and little else to talk about. In truth, the courtroom drama that surrounds her murder has eclipsed who she was turning her murderer into a legendary character himself, which doesn't seem quite fair. Evelyn, to those who knew her, was a beautiful and charming woman. She first married a stockbroker by the name of Walter Kierman, but unfortunately that marriage didn't last, and it was said that Walter had a problem with alcohol. They divorced within a couple of years. Then, Evelyn married another man who allegedly also had some alcohol abuse issues, a surgeon by the name of Dr. Mirny Lewis. That marriage lasted for about seven years. By 1930, 40-year-old Evelyn was twice divorced and was likely well taken care of in her divorce settlements. But then she met and married a man by the name of Clement Pettit. This union was a love match. Clement was not in the greatest of health. He suffered from arthritis that made even walking a painful ordeal. But Evelyn finally had someone who truly cared about her, and she could take very good care of him given that they as a couple had the financial resources to manage his health with the best that could be offered at the time. Pettit came from a wealthy banking family. The couple moved to Los Angeles, and in 1935, they built a beautiful home there. But unfortunately, in 1944, Clement died. Evelyn was 52 years old, but by all accounts, she looked much younger. Evelyn always tried to look her best, 
and it was said that she was a very attractive woman even as she aged. After two years of the single life, Evelyn married a retired engineer by the name of Norris Mumper, but he also died two years later of a heart attack. At this point, Evelyn was left with a very comfortable portfolio which included not only stock investments, but in addition to that, she owned apartment buildings, she had cash, her worth was estimated at approximately $600,000 at the time, which would equate to about $8.5 million today. Evelyn met her final husband, L. E. Scott, at a dinner party. She was 57, attractive, and wealthy. He was 53, portraying himself as a successful stockbroker, but in truth, he didn't have a penny. They were married in 1949. Evelyn's friends and family were not impressed with Scott, but nobody said much because they didn't want to offend her. How much real background Evelyn knew about Scott remains a mystery. Originally from Missouri, Scott started in retail sales as a teenager. He was said to be a tall, handsome young man who was obsessed with creating an image of prosperity. He'd been married and divorced before meeting Evelyn. His former wife was the daughter of a wealthy Canadian businessman. But his bride's father ended up paying Scott off to win a divorce for his daughter due to Scott's abusive behavior towards her. At some point, he found the time to write a book called How to Fascinate Men. It sounds like it might have been some kind of self-help book for women. We haven't read this book, so we can't tell you whether or not it's actually helpful, but no publishing houses wanted to publish it, so he decided to self-publish it. That decision turned into a $6,000 debt. Once Scott married Evelyn, he no longer had to pretend that he was wealthy. In fact, he had access to much of Evelyn's money, and she allowed him to take over the finances of the household. He converted hundreds of thousands of dollars into cash, placing it in safety deposit boxes. Also, it appears he didn't treat his new wife Evelyn any better than he treated his first wife. But unfortunately this time, Evelyn found herself to be at his mercy. There were witnesses who later testified Evelyn sometimes had bruises and black eyes, which she would blame on her own clumsiness. In May of 1955, friends and family became suspicious of Scott when nobody could get a hold of Evelyn. Once more, it was learned that Scott had fired Evelyn's household employees. When people asked where Evelyn was, he told many different stories, making sure he trashed her whenever possible. Sometimes he'd say she was getting help for a drinking problem back east. Other times he said she had a nervous breakdown and was hospitalized. Still others, he simply said she was visiting family. And he also said she was off having lesbian affairs. At the time, that might have been a shock to some people. Evelyn's friends and family were even more suspicious once he started saying things like that because Evelyn was known to hardly ever drink and didn't drink too much. She had one bout with anxiety in the 40s, but that was all. She had undergone a complete physical two days prior to her disappearance, and nothing of importance was found. According to her doctor, she was in sound health. 
Evelyn had last been seen at a Mercedes car dealership where she and her husband had test-driven a car. After that, nobody had seen or spoken with Evelyn. A close friend contacted dozens of mental hospitals and sanitariums to see if she was a patient, but they had no luck. They also offered rewards for information as to her whereabouts, but heard nothing useful. Overtures were made to the district attorney who directed his office to investigate. Evelyn's longtime attorney was also suspicious. She had always made sure he knew where she could be reached, since he handled a large part of her affairs. Whenever she went anywhere, she always left an itinerary with his office, and Evelyn did travel a lot, not just internationally for pleasure, but she also had family and business interests in several states. Finally, the DA's office decided to question Scott. He told them that Evelyn was an alcoholic and also that she had cancer. He told him she had taken tens of thousands of dollars with her when she left on the evening of May 16th while he went to the store to buy her tooth powder. He said she had been drunk that night and that the next morning he found her car abandoned not far from their Bel Air home. He didn't report her missing, he explained, because she had left for short periods of time in the past. Now, during this little investigation, they found out that Scott was busy developing new relationships. He was giving Evelyn's belongings, like her jewelry and clothing, to his new girlfriends. No action besides discreet questioning and inquiries had been taken on the case until Evelyn's brother, E. Raymond Throsby, decided to petition the Superior Court to be appointed as trustee of her estate in March of 1956. She had been missing for almost a year, and he was doing everything he could to ignite a murder investigation that had never really gotten started. It then became clear that the DA's office had been conducting this investigation without the knowledge of the police. The police chief decided it was time for them to do a little investigating of their own, and they were able to start gathering some evidence. Police were given permission by Scott to search the home. They found no blood or body parts, but they did find some remnants of women's underwear in the Scott's home incinerator. Scott said he had to burn underwear because they smelled badly from Evelyn soiling herself. They were identified as Evelyn's. Nearby, they found two pair of eyeglasses and a partial denture plate. Those were later identified by Evelyn's dentist and eye doctor to have belonged to Evelyn. Evelyn wore that denture everywhere she went in public and she also needed to wear those glasses to see and to read. They discovered that since his wife's disappearance, Scott had been forging Evelyn's signatures on checks, then depositing cash into his own account to the tune of about $2,000 a month. They also found that Evelyn's safety deposit boxes had been emptied. L. Ewing Scott was indicted on 13 charges of fraud and 9 counts of forgery. That they could prove with no trouble at all. After his arrest, he immediately was out on $25,000 bail, and he then took off to Canada. L. Ewing Scott was now officially a fugitive from justice. While he was on the run, the investigation continued and ultimately, he was also charged with the murder of his wife, Evelyn. After about a year, he returned to the United States to purchase a new car. But when he tried to get back to Canada, 
he was identified as wanted. After a vain attempt to fight extradition, Scott was extradited back to California to face charges. Obviously, Scott and his attorneys attempted to get his murder indictment dropped. Their reasoning was just the same as we hear nowadays, and they tried to use the famous Tisdale versus Connecticut Mutual Life Insurance Company case. Scott's argument was that a missing person cannot be presumed dead until seven years have passed, because in that case, it was declared that in short, and I'm just paraphrasing, if a person who is otherwise attached to his home, business, and family and he journeys from his home to a distant city, is never heard from again, before death can be assumed, seven years must pass, or it must be shown that he was last seen or heard of in peril. Citing this case worked against Scott because the state proved that Evelyn's character was such that her disappearance could only be accounted for through peril, as she fit the description of the type of person who would not have abandoned her family and business. So by that, her death was substantiated. Once Scott was safely in jail awaiting trial, he began to try to make himself into some sort of celebrity. He envisioned a movie being made about his life. His attorney actually hired an agent for him, and he would conduct interviews with the press whenever anyone wanted to talk to him. He lied on a constant basis. He told one reporter, I've been accused of everything but communism, and I expect to hear that next. My morale is great because I know in my mind that I have done nothing wrong. Even prison life rolls off me like water on a duck's back. There's nothing like a clear conscience. When asked what he thought happened to Evelyn, he said he thought someone who could benefit from her death probably put her in a hospital somewhere. That was a not-so-tactful accusation in Evelyn's brother's direction, because Scott would not inherit Evelyn's estate. He said she had dictated in her will that he was to inherit nothing. That was actually not true. He was provided for in Evelyn's will, but he was not supposed to inherit everything. He also said that he believed Evelyn may have amnesia. The trial was slow-moving, at first because the death penalty was on the table in California at the time, so it took a while to find a jury that could be qualified to recommend the death penalty on only circumstantial evidence. They had a mountain of circumstantial evidence and lots of testimony. They brought in some bank employees to testify to Scott accessing Evelyn's safety deposit box as few as three days after her disappearance. Experts testified that her signature on a joint tenancy card in order for him to access the boxes had been forged. To combat the characterization that Evelyn was a drunk, the prosecution called her former butler. He testified, quote, I served only old fashions to Mrs. Scott at her home, never more than two of an evening. She was a perfect lady. I never saw her intoxicated. A couple of women Scott was seeing after Evelyn's disappearance testified. One, Marianne Beeman, to whom Scott proposed marriage twice, testified that she signed in at a resort as Mrs. Scott, and she received many gifts of jewelry and other items from Scott. Another woman testified that after Evelyn had disappeared, 
Scott was complaining about Evelyn, saying she was an alcoholic chain smoker who had unnatural relationships with other females. The woman asked him, If you feel so dreadfully towards her as you must, why don't you just get a divorce? He said, Now nah, I'm going to wait seven years and she'll be declared legally dead. Evelyn's attorney was obliged to produce her will. In it, she had left half of her state to her brother and the other half to Scott. The defense decided to use some of their own circumstantial evidence. They brought in some people who testified they had seen Evelyn after her disappearance. They identified photos of her as being the same person seen trying to board a plane in Mexico City and also in a local store three different times in 1955 after her disappearance. The prosecutor said in his closing statement, quote, The law does not give a person a reward for disposing of his victim. Otherwise, a person could kill and hide or dispose of his victim and then sit back smugly and be immune from prosecution, unquote. Another facet of this point is that looking at the history of the victim, Evelyn had a history of staying in regular contact with others, with not taking off without letting someone know where she was going and with carefully planning any travel, which in fact, she was in the middle of doing when she abruptly disappeared. Her plans were not completed. She had a hair appointment for the day after her disappearance, but her hairdresser had testified that a man had called and canceled it and all her future hair appointments. Using common sense, you have to look at the previous patterns of a victim. None of the details surrounding Evelyn's disappearance support her leaving of her own volition. The defense in its closing statement said, quote, It seems by this case that if your husband or wife disappears, you would better stay home. Don't go anyplace or the district attorney will file a murder charge against you. Unquote. In all, the trial lasted about 11 weeks. Throughout the trial, the defense obsessed about the Latin phrase corpus delicti, which they said had not been established because there was no corpse. So, the judge had to remind the jury that the term corpus delicti does not refer directly to a dead body or a corpse. It refers to the body of the crime, the death of the victim, and also that the death of the victim was caused by criminal means. The jury deliberated for four days, and they came back with a finding of guilty on December 21, 1957. Scott was subsequently sentenced to life in prison. This was the first time in American history that a murder conviction occurred without any direct evidence and without a confession. This was almost entirely circumstantial. The prosecution used common sense, and so did the jury. For years, Scott continued appealing the criminal conviction on the basis of no body and simultaneously vying for a share of Evelyn's fortune. These appeals, motions, and assorted requests to the court were denied, and he took them all as far as he could. The justices who wrote the affirmation of the denial of his motions made some important statements. One thing they said was, quote, The evidence was wholly circumstantial. It is not claimed that in a trial for murder the death of a missing person and the use of criminal means to accomplish death cannot be proved by circumstantial evidence, provided 
it is sufficient to preclude any reasonable theory of innocence of the accused. The principle is well established. If it were not so, we would have to hold the evidence insufficient to support the verdict." Unquote. The other thing they said was, quote, the theory of the people can be stated as follows. It would be utterly unreasonable to believe that Mrs. Scott would have run away from her home, her husband, and her friends. It would have been an irrational thing for her to do. If it was unreasonable to believe that she would have left home voluntarily, that would have been a circumstance tending logically to prove that she did not leave of her own accord. The people's theory then proceeds to the activities of the appellant, both before and after his wife's disappearance. It is contended that the evidence proved that he had a motive for doing away with his wife. He coveted her large estate, attempted to prepare her friends for an explanation of her disappearance at some future time, was pleased and satisfied when she disappeared, did everything in his power to deceive her friends and the authorities in order to prevent an investigation, promptly set out through forgeries and thefts to steal her property and fled the country when he feared that he would be charged with her murder. Thus, the evidence was centered in proof of the characters, the motives, and the activities of two persons. More precisely, it was centered in proof of their respective states of mind, which would tell whether Mrs. Scott had a reason or purpose for running away, whether appellant had a motive and a plan for making away with her and whether he knew after the 16th day of May, 1955, that she was dead." Unquote. It's a fairly long read, but it's super interesting. It reveals the whole case up to that point. We're going to include a link in the show notes if you'd like to know more about the perspectives of these justices. Scott was released from prison in 1976. He was 81 years old. He lived in relative obscurity until his death in 1987. He spent several years living in cheap housing, and then eventually he was moved into care. Sometimes writers and reporters would visit, trying to get him to confess. He enjoyed talking about himself. Now, a book was written about this case. It was aptly entitled Corpus Delicti. I'm sure it talks about some of the other details we have not covered today. We didn't cover them because they didn't have any bearing on the outcome of the case, but they do sort of give you a better idea of what a con artist Scott was at his core. The writer of the book, Diane Wagner, interviewed Scott a bunch of times. He didn't admit to anything, but then in 1984, he called Diane and said he wanted to see her one last time and that he had something important to tell her. She brought her tape recorder and she says she recorded him confessing to the murder of Evelyn Scott. He said he presented himself in her bedroom on the night of May 16th. She was already in bed. She saw a rubber mallet in his hand and she said, but I haven't done anything. At which point he hit her on the head with the mallet. Then he wrapped her body in a tarp and buried her in the Nevada desert. According to Diane, Scott was proud of himself for that, smugly reminding her that the body was never found. That didn't stop him from being convicted, but it did prevent Evelyn's loved ones from being able to lay her body to rest properly. 
He was glad he deprived them of that because he had nothing but contempt for them and for Evelyn. He told Diane that Evelyn deserved to die and she was a terrible person. After the book was published, by this time Scott was nearing the end of his terrible life. And it's said that he had a little bit of dementia. A journalist with the LA Times by the name of David Johnston visited Scott and asked him what made him decide to confess. Scott responded, Acknowledge it? I'd be a damn fool to acknowledge it. They never found the body. He was still clinging in vain to this corpus delicti misunderstanding, which, to be fair, many investigators and prosecuting attorneys also cling to when talking to loved ones of victims. Scott must have forgotten that he confessed to Diane Wagner, who by then he thought was his third wife. This case is a wonderful example of how media attention, loved ones using the court systems themselves to get disappearances recognized, and circumstantial evidence are all useful tools in closing cases of victims of violent crimes. The evidence is there. Common sense is a part of the investigational and the criminal justice process because we're human beings, we're not machines. Life is messy. The court system is aware of that. In order for all of this to work, you need dedicated investigators who have a level of sophistication and understanding of necessary procedures, and you need a dedicated prosecutor as well. Many, many cold cases are that way today because the investigation was missing one or both of those two components. Even though Evelyn's body was never found, Evelyn's brother eventually inherited the bulk of what was left of her estate. We hope Evelyn's loved ones found peace, and we wish that for Evelyn as well, wherever she may be. Like I said before, we will have some links below for you to check out if you're interested in doing more reading on this case and the still to this day misunderstood concept of corpus delicti. We feel this is a relevant topic for us to address, particularly right now. If you'd like to discuss, feel free to comment on the YouTube channel or on our Facebook page. There's also a Facebook group available. You can contact us through our website, as always. Don't forget to please subscribe, like, review, share. Help keep us going. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon.